1: products that come in paper packaging. And not just the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History class from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy,
3: And I'm Delena charper
2: And today we're going to talk about the Amistad Mutiny. It was actually a listener suggestion, but it's one that's kind of been on my mind for a little while now. And to most of you, Amistad probably brings to mind that 1997 Steven Spielberg movie. I think Just about everybody saw it. It has Anthony Hopkins in it. He's got some awesome mutton chops because he's playing John Quincy Adams. It has Matthew McConaughey. It has Juman Hansu playing the slave leader, who we're obviously going to talk about in great detail. But I was thinking about it. I don't remember the movie very well. It's probably been since 1997 that I saw it. Yeah,
3: same here. It was a long time ago.
2: I, I was thinking, though, there is one scene, though, that really stands out. And I'm not sure if it... It's just because it was so memorable or if because I saw it later, probably in, in high school, you know, as a, as a demonstration of what the middle passage might have looked like. But that scene really stands out in my mind. It's horrific. The slaves are beaten. They're starved. They're murdered all on the massive trip across the Atlantic. But the interesting thing here is that even though the movie, Amistad, turns out to be kind of a courtroom drama, that scene, the Middle Passage, is really crucial, and it's really crucial in the story of the Amistad in general, because the case against the mutineers, the the slave uprising, hinged on the lie that they never experienced the Middle Passage.
3: Yeah, and that lie was that they were, in fact, Cuban-born Ladinos, or slaves who were born in Latin America, and... Most crucially, that they were slaves before Spain had banished trafficking in its empire.
2: Yeah, that they had kind of been grandfathered into the whole slave system. In reality, of course, the eventual Amistad mutineers were born in Africa. So it's Africa where we will start our story. And, uh, of course, there are lots of mutineers. So They have lots of different backstories, and we have varying degrees of information on different members of the mutiny. But fortunately, a lot of the backstories are pretty similar to the leader, Joseph Sinke, who was a Mende tribesman from what is today Sierra Leone. And in large, they were mostly men, young men. Um, they were usually captured when they were walking along a road or in their village, uh, essentially jumped and kidnapped and sold into slavery.
3: Yeah, Sinke in particular, who was born Sengbe Pia, he was a twenty five year old, married father of three and a rice farmer when he was captured. And his father was headman in the village of Mani. Now his capture, most sources believe may have had something to do with a debt that he owed. But what we do know is that after a three-day march to the Portuguese slave factory on the island of Lomboko, Cinque was sold to a Spanish slaver and loaded aboard the slave ship to with hundreds of others, bound for Havana.
2: Yeah, and that trip from Africa to Havana is, of course, the Middle Passage. But once the Tekora are landed or arrived in Havana, Cinque and 52 others were sold to two Cuban sugar planters, and that's Jose Ruiz and Pedro Montas, and they were packed aboard a second ship, and that is La Amistad. But there's a catch with this story, and you probably guessed it already with our little introduction there, but the year was 1839, and the slave trade had been illegal in the Spanish Empire for years, since 1820, in fact, due to this 1817 treaty with Great Britain. But the Spanish don't really try very hard to follow their own ban against slavery. They sort of enforce it haphazardly.
3: And Cuban officials could really easily be bribed to falsify slave documents. So they would make them out to be Ladinos instead of Africans. And this is exactly what Ruiz and Montes did. They had fake passports made for The Africans and then set sail from Havana.
2: Yeah, and they went to all that trouble of making fake passports for their new slaves because they were concerned that if a British patroller stopped them, their slaves might be confiscated. Because even though the Spanish weren't very invested in enforcing their laws, the British definitely were. So they, like you said, they set sail from Havana and they were headed to Puerto Principe, which was the northwestern Cuban port. And it's there where they would have ultimately... Ultimately settled on the sugar plantations and they left, you know, trying to be all secret before dawn, June 28, 1839. On board, just to give you a picture of what the ship looked like before the mutiny went down, there were 53 slaves, the two slavers, Ruiz and Montez, Captain Ramon Ferrer, and a Ladino cabin boy, and a mixed race slave cook. Also, Judging from later accounts, there are two ship hands on deck, two sailors. Um, Sometimes you see them, sometimes (laughs) sometimes you don't. Sometimes you see them, sometimes you don't, except they are conspicuously missing after the rebellion.
3: You would have normally had two and a half to three days at sea to make this trip. But storms cause a delay, which means they have to start rationing food. The slaves who are on board only get one banana, two potatoes and one cup of water per day. They're also flogged by an increasingly abusive crew, so very bad conditions for the slaves on board here. They're also, naturally, if you're being flogged every day, really scared about what awaits them when they arrive at their destination. Cinque actually uses signs to communicate with the cook, Celestino, who indicates that the slaves will be killed, cut up, salted and eaten once they've landed which i'm just imagining like the signals that they're using and how he would have signaled cut up salted and eaten but i'm sure it wasn't pleasant i
2: think he point, pointed at barrels and one could assume he used the universal hand across the neck <laughs> symbol yeah um but you know so Cel- celestino is is playing a prank on on sinke essentially trying to put him on it has a pretty terrible consequence, especially for Celestino, because this news plus the already bad conditions on board the ship makes Cinque decide to act. You know, he's afraid that his time is running short and what he's seen so far has been so horrific. So before dawn on July 2nd, he uses a hidden nail that he's squirreled away to break out of his iron collar and then he goes on to free some of the other Africans on board. They arm themselves with cane knives, which are really big, scary knives, and they immediately kill the captain and the cook. So (laughs) there's the don't make practical jokes in a dire situation, guys.
3: If the two sailors were on board, as we mentioned before, they disappeared. They weren't on board the ship later. Probably drown. Right, exactly. And the The uh, slaves, they end up sparing the Ladino cabin boy, and they decide to keep Montes and Ruiz alive as well so that they can help the slaves navigate back to Africa. But the slavers are pretty tricky. They actually, they sail east during the day, but then turn northward at night. So they're thinking maybe the British will spot them and stop the ship.
2: Maybe we'll hit the North American coast. And Cinque and the other the other Africans on board just see that they're heading towards the sun, you know, heading East during the morning and they, they think they're on their way to Africa, but it just goes on and on and on like that for eventually two months. Uh, they run out of food. There's no water. The sails are in tatters. The rigging is in tatters. 10 Africans die from drinking some unknown liquids aboard the ship, which proved to be poisonous. And, Finally, Sinque realizes that he's out of luck, too, and allows Montez to land. And they anchor on Long Island, and Sinque goes to shore with a few other guys to use the Spanish money on board to buy provisions. But meanwhile, enough small ships have have seen what is essentially a ghost ship at this point, you know, scary, tattered sails and all these knife-wielding people on board, they've seen it in the waters. They've been too afraid to go close to it themselves, but they've reported back to the United States Revenue Cutter Service about this mystery ship. So while Cinque is going to shore, the U.S. Cutter Service finally catches up with them.
3: Yeah, the USS Washington, in fact, catches up with them and they board the Amistad The commanding officer here is Lieutenant Thomas Gedney, and he seizes the ship, the cargo and the Africans on August 27th, 1839, and tows the boat to New London, Connecticut, where slavery happens to be legal at the time. Yeah. Once they're there, he alerts U.S. Federal District Justice Andrew T. Judson. But Judson can't get the whole story because the Africans don't speak English. So he decides to refer the case to the U.S. Circuit Court in Hartford, which is meeting in September. Meanwhile, the Africans are sent to jail in New Haven. So they're stuck in Connecticut.
2: Yeah. And this epic legal battle starts from this point. The circuit court trial comes first, and it's largely centered on murder and piracy charges against the Africans, because in Spanish eyes, they have killed crew members and stolen a Spanish ship. Uh, But this trial, the circuit court trial, only lasts a few days. The judge dismisses those charges of murder and piracy and says, well, the Africans are not under any U.S. jurisdiction for crimes committed against the Cubans. So he refers the case to the U.S. district court. And by this point, the story has really started to get a lot of national attention and abolitionists have sort of taken it up as a great way to fight slavery in the United States as well, or at least draw attention to it. Uh, Some of the abolitionists involved, Louis Tappan, Joshua Levitt, and Simeon Jocelyn formed the Amistad Committee and even raised defense funds for the Africans. And this lets them actually hire an attorney, lead attorney Roger Sherman Baldwin, to defend them. And they get a hold of some translators, too. So finally, the African side of the story can be told.
3: Yeah, and that's key, because once the slaves have a voice, the sides become quite clear. The Africans argue that they're not slaves, they're freemen who were born in Africa and traded illegally. And Ruiz and Montez, on the other hand, they argue that the slaves are actually Ladinos and murderers to boot. And what's interesting is that they, is the people that they have on their side. They are supported by the Spanish government and by U.S. President Martin Van Buren. And he's up for re-election soon. He's not necessarily a supporter of slavery, but he wants to impress Southern slave owners. And so he arranges for a Navy ship to come up and be ready to return the slaves to Cuba immediately after the trial before a possible appeal can be made.
2: Yeah, so his plan is, is he's assuming that the court will rule in favor of the Cubans. And as soon as they do, he's going to get the Africans right back to Cuba before anybody can make a fuss. But... There's a third element to the story, and and it also has to do with property, which is sort of the key here. Under maritime law, compensation would go to the person who helped save a ship or the ship's cargo from loss, even if they were just doing the job that they were supposed to do for the U.S. government, like Gedney. So Gedney has filed a claim to the ship's cargo. You know, he's saying... I risked my life, my crew, my ship to essentially rescue the Amistad and rescue all of its cargo from this mutinous situation. And he files a claim to not just the cargo as in the material goods, but the slaves as well, which he values the whole thing together, $40,000, 25000 for the slaves. So he is in it for a very substantial profit.
3: Yeah. And there are other people who have things at stake here as well, or at least think they do. Long Island Seaman, for example, the Henry Green, he files a competing salvage claim. And Ruiz and Montez, of course, with support from the Queen of Spain, are trying to get their money and property back. So there are a lot of people who are vying here for the stuff yeah. involved.
2: It's it's not just about the mutiny and the murders and what happened on the ship. It's about what the ship is worth. And that includes the people on it. So. Obviously this trial turns into a sensation with, with so many competing interests and so many high profile people involved and there are trial trial spectators who come, they start filling up the galleries, newspapers cover it, there's gripping testimony from Cinque and from others, detailing their lives in Africa, you know, their lives before being captured, their capture, the Middle Passage, the sail in Cuba, and the revolt on the ship to just sort of lay the picture of we're not Ladinos, we are from Africa. So their defense attorney, though, pretty crucially doesn't drift far into the moral arguments. I mean, he lets Cinque and the others tell their own gripping stories, but he doesn't get too much into the ethics of slavery, which, of course, this is long before slavery was abolished in the United States. So he keeps it about property, which is something that maybe people could think about a little more clearly. And clearly, it's everyone's focus in this trial.
3: Yeah, and his strategy really works. In January 1840, the court does several things. They dismiss Green's salvage claim. They award some salvage rights to Gedney. And they rule, most importantly, that the Africans were not legally enslaved. So the US government must return them to Africa. So yeah, that's
2: probably a pretty unexpected verdict for a lot of these high stakes players involved, including Martin Van Buren. I mean, he is not expecting this. So he ordered an immediate appeal and eventually, after a few more stops along the way, we're gonna, you know, skip along a bit, the case eventually gets to the Supreme Court and at that point, the abolitionists who were supporting the Africans knew that they might need to bring in some new blood to to keep up with the high-profile nature of the trial. Some and, star power. Yeah, exactly. Some celebrity lawyers Um to to just keep public interest going and to make it so, so high-profile that Van Buren couldn't try any funny business like having the slaves suddenly disappear to Cuba. So... The Amstead Committee goes after none other than John Quincy Adams to defend the Africans, along with the original defense attorney, Roger Baldwin.
3: Yeah, John Quincy Adams at this point, he's pretty old. He's 73, visually impaired and out of practice. He hasn't really acted as a lawyer in 30 plus years or so. But he's still, as we said, really high profile. He's a congressman, former president. Um, and known as Old Man Eloquent. So we're ready to hear him give some really compelling speeches here. Yeah,
2: he's a good speaker. So he takes a little convincing. You know, he's he's reluctant to get on board for such an intense commitment and something that is, again, so high profile. We keep using that word, but that's what it is. Uh, but eventually he decides to go for it. He kind of thinks it might be his last great, achievement as a political man. Um, and he starts, he starts swinging right off the bat. He raises questions about Van Buren and his administration and whether they falsify documents relating to the the incident. And this ultimately starts a congressional inquiry. And then by February 1841, the Supreme Court trial U.S. versus Amistad begins.
3: Baldwin actually opens the case, surprisingly, I guess, if you're a John Quincy Adams fan. But Adams eventually does spend eight and a half, maybe seven hours making his argument before court. And in it, he refers back to the Declaration of Independence. Which would be
2: quite moving, I would assume, as the son of one of its signers.
3: Definitely. And in the end, the court upheld the previous rulings and found for the Africans.
2: Yeah. And by this point, I mean, this is OK. It is... It's a victory. It's certainly a a victory for the abolitionists, for the Africans. They get to go home, but it's sad too. At this point there are only 35 surviving. Africans from the Amistad. And the committee, the Amistad committee raises funds for their return. The survivors actually go on a speaking tour to sort of help out with their own fundraising. Because they know English now. They've learned English. They've had these several years in prison by this point to learn English. And by January 1842, they land in West Africa. But the The mystery or sort of a sketchy aspect of the story doesn't stop there.
3: No, the the mystery is in what happens after, right? I mean, when Cinque returns, he finds that his wife and three children are missing. But supposedly he bounces back from this to become a slave trader himself. Or that's what some people say. And a wealthy one at that, a wealthy slaver. Obviously, this is a really contentious claim, one that actually got Spielberg some flack for not including it or mentioning it in the film. But is it even true?
2: Yeah. So, you know, it it is a pretty serious thing to say about somebody. And there's a really interesting article I read in the Journal of American History by Howard Jones that suggests a lot of the story, a lot of the story about Cinque the slaver seems based in a work of historical fiction.
3: Very surprising, Yeah, kind of opposite of what you think would happen. Usually you think of history... Some primary sources. (laughs) Yeah, some some primary sources in here um, influencing the the novel, but instead it was the other way around, and specifically the 1953 novel that, that they're referring to is The Slave Mutiny by William A. Owens. And it seems that while Owens identified his own work as fiction, he alluded to enough tantalizing sources in it that historians started to take it up as fact. In 1969, for example, historian C. Van Woodward even cited the story in his presentation before the organization of American historians, which was something that really stirred up a lot of controversy.
2: Yeah, and in the the article I mentioned, Jones notes that Owens himself did not start the rumor in his novel. It was mentioned, for instance, in a 1946 history of the American Missionary Society, but with no source. But Owens' novel definitely influenced opinions in pretty crucial ways. The Cinque Slaver story even made it into three popular historical surveys. So it got into enough stuff that people started thinking that this rumor might have had... Surely, it must have some basis in fact. Surely, there's some primary source out there that that references sinke becoming a slavery. That's what people started to think.
3: Yeah, so I guess at this point, we, re- we can't really know what to think. I mean, is it rumors? Is there hidden evidence? Yeah,
2: Owens talked about evidence being... Um, spirited away somehow during a move but who knows
3: yeah i mean we were talking a little bit, a little bit about it before and it seems like doubtful that such a big thing wouldn't have somehow made it
2: yeah made its way back well and jones even mentions in the article that had sinke descended into the slave trade the missionaries in africa who reported in pretty great detail about most of what he was doing, would have mentioned that Sinke had not only become a flavor, but a wealthy one. I mean, I'd, I'd say that's a pretty notable, notable thing. Yeah,
3: you'd probably mention it. I think so, you heard that around in my
2: letter home. So, you know, it's something to think about, but it's it, it's also maybe sort of a good lesson and not to jump to huge
3: conclusions. Absolutely. But regardless of what happened in Cinque's later life, the Amistad decision was clearly somewhat ironic in that slavery was still much alive in the U.S.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's the 1840s, but it also set a standard for using the justice system to advance causes. So, I mean, we can't really say it, it helped end slavery when it is so much so long before the Civil War, but it, it definitely helped using the justice system as, as a way to get something done.
3: Yeah, so Amistad stuck around in a lot of ways for many years. I mean, Congress would debate the case from time to time for the next 20 years until the Civil War started in 1861. And Spain kept kind of, they wanted a little bit of Money. They weren't for, gonna let it go. No, they didn't want to <laughs> let it go. They wanted um to be paid for the the slaves and the ship and everything that they'd lost. they lost. So
2: they'd pester the U.S. from time time to time about paying up or, or working out some deal. But you mentioned the Civil War, the start of the Civil War in 1861, and that's actually where we're headed next, or kind of in a way. Kind of, yep. It's not gonna be a straight up battle episode, although it is pretty bloody and violent.
3: So, yeah, until the next episode, if you have any comments on this one or if you have any ideas for future ideas you'd like us to research feel free to write us an email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com, or you can look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at Mist History.
2: Yeah, and if you want to learn a little bit more about the eventual freedom of slaves in the United States, we have an article called How the Emancipation Proclamation Worked, and you can find it by searching on our homepage for Emancipation Proclamation at www.howstuffworks.com.
1: more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.